Welcome to the second episode of Campus Wise Considering Community podcast. If you weren't with us last week, Considering Community is a podcast that seeks to examine issues and topics at the University of Cincinnati that we think need more airtime. Last week we discussed the student worker strike, and this week we'll be minding Charles McMicken, who we'll see was a controversial character who played a crucial role in the development of the university. His name adorns the university building that is probably familiar to many of you, McMicken Hall. My name is Connor Herbert, and I'm the president of Campus Y, and this week, my co-host is Isaac Smitherman. Hello, everyone. My name is Isaac Smitherman. Uh, I'm a fourth-year environmental engineering student here at UC, um, and I'm excited to jump into this episode. And we'll be talking with uh, Dr. Steinert, who's a member of the history department. Hi, I'm Andalina Steinert. I'm a visiting assistant professor in the history department, and um, I got involved in thinking about Charles McMicken when I was actually getting my PhD at UC and um, Dr. David Stradling, who was then the Dean in, for Humanities and Arts and Sciences, um, began thinking about universities studying slavery and Charles McMicken's legacy, um, largely due to student pressure after the murder of Samuel Dubose, where African-American students at UC really pushed created an organization called the Irate Eight and really pushed the administration to, to be more transparent and um, thoughtful about the way we deal with our legacy of race on campus, um, which as you both know is very problematic, it's a problematic legacy. And so um, Dr. Stradling reached out to me as a then graduate student and asked if I would um, try to learn more about Charles McMicken because the university didn't really know that much about him. And so as a grad student, I started doing that research. And then um, most recently, my research kind of culminated in a published article in Ohio Valley History in the spring of 2021. Nope. Is it the spring? Summer of 2021. And actually, I think that's a good segue. So you mentioned uh, problematic history. um, And... um, could you just give us a like sort of like, overhead of on like who Charles McMicken was and what his role with the institution is? Sure. Although I could talk about that for a whole hour <laughs> or so, I'll try. I'll try to be brief, but cut me off if you need me to. Um, <clears throat> so Charles McMicken was born in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. He was his second son, and that meant he wasn't going to inherit the land. His older brother Andrew was going to get the land, so he left there as a young man. Um, and came to Cincinnati, tried to work here, um, you know, as a merchant and didn't do so well. And at the time, um, Cincinnati was just very young and really relied on river travel. And so he um, began traveling on river boats back and forth to Louisiana. Um, and he eventually settled in a town there called St. Francisville, Louisiana, where he set up um, some industry, well, he stores, he owns two shops probably and bought a lot of land. And so he basically made a fortune eventually in just being a really shrewd businessman. So he would buy things that he could buy cheaply and then sell them at a higher price. Like it didn't really matter to him what he was buying or selling. It was just a matter of like, what's the margin? Can I make a bunch of money on this transaction? So he would, um, he would buy land. He would buy people. He would buy textiles. He would buy cotton. All of those things were um, ways that he was able to make money. So, um, obviously, that is a problematic thing today. Like, he was not really um, concerned by the fact that he was using people as a commodity, right? So, um, eventually, he returned to Cincinnati. And so, in his later years, he basically split his year. So, he would use, he would be in Cincinnati half the year. And he would be in New Orleans, well, or in St. Francisco um, the other half of the year. Though he also did for a time live in Philadelphia on and off as well, um, which is near Bucks County where he was born. And then 
Um, at some point, he was inspired, we think, probably by um, a guy in Philadelphia named Gerard. Um, Stephen Gerard was like the second wealthiest man, I think, ever in American history, a really incredibly rich guy. And he left his legacy. He left all his money to the city of Philadelphia to create a college there. And so we think that that's what inspired Charles McMicken to leave, who, who really had almost no formal education, none that I know of, and inspired him to leave his, all his wealth, almost all of his wealth, to the city of Cincinnati to found a university. And he says in his will specifically that the university is to be for white boys and girls. He had actually originally envisioned it as two schools, um, but it got merged to one. And um, <clears throat> so as like a legal term, that's, that's what's called a codicil, right? Like uh, specifically segregating or constructing an institution to segregate it from other groups, right? Well, so I'm not a legal scholar, and I don't know that I can speak to that. Um, it isn't set out in his will in such a way that it is, um, like, separate from anything else. It's in a narrative description about what he wants. And the narrative is quite detailed about a lot of things. He talks about where he wants the school to go. He talks about how he wants the Bible used. He talks about, which is as a secular um, book rather than a religious book. He talks about, um, you know, that if there is money left over, also make an orphanage. That his, that his descendants should have access or um, uh, reduced tuition to come to the school. Like he gives a whole bunch of details. So, um, I don't know that that one is any more enforceable or strictly laid out than any others. And honestly, well, yeah, I mean, he does bother to insert the word white, right? So he's definitely making it clear that he doesn't want people of color to be educated at this school, which is obviously super problematic. The good news is that the university trustees seem to have completely ignored that. You know, the university was segregated because education in Cincinnati was segregated, but, you know, eventually as African-American folks went through high school in Cincinnati and were then eligible to apply to colleges, African-American folks came to UC. I mean, UC was founded in 1870. And then I think our first black enrollment was 1884 or 1886. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't long before African-American folks were at UC despite what Charles McMicken wrote. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering, was there, is there any history around that of, um, you know, that was that a struggle for uh, black students to come to UC and um, maybe even just the legacy of like Darwin T. Turner, um, you know, being the youngest African-American to graduate from a college and, and how those legacies tie into this conversation. So I don't know specifically the conditions so obviously I assume that there was racial discrimination uh, or against the earliest black students at UC. I know that their black students were not allowed to join clubs and fraternities and sororities. So clearly they, they faced, they didn't have the same ability to access the resources of the college that other people did. There's a siren going by my yeah. house, so we'll just have to wait a second. Okay, we're in Clifton, we're used to it. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so, so yes, I'm sure there was a struggle. I don't have a lot of specifics about that, but I would tie that to black education in Cincinnati. So, um, Cincinnati had for many years, what was called the colored schools of Cincinnati. It was a separate independent school system that had a black board, black principals in the schools, 
black teachers and it was segregated for only black students. Um, that system didn't really have a high school for, for certainly um, mo for most of its existence. There was a high school called Gaines High School, which was in the West End and was sort of short-lived. Um, but for the most part, African-Americans wouldn't have had access to the kind of preparation that they would have needed to even apply to get into UC. So, um, you know, the, the lower education system had to mature and develop and prepare students well enough before they would even have been um, able to come to UC. But, you know, what's interesting about that is that I still see, you know, UC has a huge problem with enrollments today that, uh, you know, our student population is so, such a low percentage of African-American students considering the, the metropolitan population around the university. And honestly, it's still a matter in lots of cases of substandard education and preparation for college, right? That, um, that people who, you know, go to sometimes public schools don't have the credentials or the ability to take tests well or all those things to be able to then come to UC. So I feel like that situation hasn't changed much in 150 years. I mean, of course, it's changed some. I don't mean we're in the same situation. But, you know, I think the, the racism in education from the very bottom is still happening today. Yeah. I mean, I think even in my head, just thinking about um, generational wealth and, and access to resources and that, um, you know, there, that there was even a time that uh, this man could just put some money down to create a university, say this is only for white people, um, also give my family access to this and how black people, you know, at what, at what point, you know, if we're tracking the history, when are black people even having access to resources like that to just start schools and start universities and build their own communities um, and have access. Yeah, I, I, I'm in my head, I'm, I'm just hearing all this stuff and how all these things are tied together. And um, I'm not sure where the question is in that. <laughs> but um, yeah, how do, I guess, how does the university, how does Cincinnati reckon with that um, and getting and actually working to get resources to people um, to help them have those opportunities? Yeah, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of conversation today about reparations and how we make the, mm -hmm. the issues, the problems of the past right in the present, right? And I would love to see you know, the universities, you know, Xavier has a, is a Jesuit institution and they have a um, history of the legacy of slavery as well. I would love to see universities really take serious the uh, idea of, college preparation and really nurturing students to be ready to come to college and then really nurturing them once they get here to make sure that they succeed. I would love to see universities view that as part of the reparations that they can offer. Very, um... I have actually, I actually have some serious ideas about how to make that happen. I taught high school for 13 years and I would, I, I like I like I would love to have that conversation with someone. <laughs> it's a very like Booker Washington type like which is like the view that I, I sort of endorse when it comes to like reparations is more towards education and sort of like creating an independent sort of like uh, or like liberating people through education as opposed to like financialism and things like that. Makes me a little nervous to be compared to Booker T. Washington. <laughs> he did a lot of things I do not like. Well, um, it just, but, it's just my, a single idea. <laughs> nothing, all right. nothing more, nothing more, nothing more. <laughs> um, but I think that reparations should be a package of things, but I think that education should be a big part of the package. And I'm, and I'm totally down. I completely endorse cash payments, too, for reparations. <laughs> And, and do you think like, um, so I, I mean, part of McMickens' Will is also for like, uh, it's aimed at like poor white people too. So like Appalachians and Cincinnati and Germans and things like that. And 
and there's also like a sort of dichotomy here because either his brother or one of his sons was like a massive abolitionist from what I understand as well. Um, and uh, a very active like speaker against like slavery, which is like this weird sort of interfamily like dichotomy. So I don't, I'm not too sure about that. If it's, if it's, if that's accurate, it's probably his nephew, Andrew. So his yes, brother is Andrew yeah. and then Andrew had a son and then that was his nephew, Andrew. He, Andrew and Charles were quite close and Andrew lived in the McMickin homestead um, with Charles in the last years of his life. And Andrew um, really, you know, supported what Charles McMickin wanted to do. There's, there's um, a one, there's almost no McMickin correspondence, but there's one letter between Charles and Andrew that I've seen. Um, it's very much a like Andrew writing home to dad for money kind of letter. Um, and, and Charles saying, you know, writing back, like, no, you don't need all that money. You know, it's like when you, when you ask your parents from college for money, it's just, it seems just like that. Um, yeah. But um, so you've struck on this thing that is really complicated and perplexing for me as a historian, which is that I got pulled into this McMicken thing, which I'm really interested in, but I, it's not my period, right? Like I, Prior to this time, I'm a, I'm a historian of 19th century cities. That's really what I study, right? And so um, I love doing the Charles McMicken research, and I love learning all about him, but I don't have as much of a sense of the context for what life was like, you know, in the moment, you know, the 1820s and 1830s when he was really um, – doing most of his work and so it's clear to me though that being said that he's a very complicated person that he um that it's we cannot boil him down to just he just traded whatever he could get his hands on just to make good buck and he didn't care if it was human beings that is true but he also um i think was situated in a moment in time in the American South that isn't as cut and dried as we make it out to be. So the town where he lived, St. Francisville, um, had a very large free Black population. So there were whites, free Blacks, and enslaved Blacks all living together in the same small city. It was a, it was a trading port, basically. Um, it's a little nothing today, but at the time it was a much bigger town relative to other towns around it. Um, and he would have, you know, every day going about his daily business, interacted with free black people. He sold land to free black people. His neighbors across the street were a free black couple. He, um, you know, had, these are people that, you know, it's, let's, I don't have any idea how, St. Francisville was, but let's say it's a town of, I don't know, 2,000 people, right? So, you know, going about your day in a town that size, you're going to interact with all kinds of people. And it, it's clear there's a scholar at LSU, Evelyn Wilson, who came to UC a couple years ago, who has done a, a in-depth uh, look at the free Black population of St. Francisville. And she really feels like they moved around freely through the town. It wasn't segregated. It wasn't like black neighborhood, white neighborhood. It was all pretty integrated. And so this is Charles McMickens' world. And, you know, there's lots of um, uh, people, white men having children with their slaves. And so there's a large kind of, um, there's a large population of folks who have white ancestry and who many of, some of those get freed when they're born. Some of those get freed when their father slash owner dies. So there's a, a really complex uh, historical moment that Charles McMickin is a part of. What the whole reason I started this by saying I'm a scholar of 19th century cities is that it's hard for me to make sense of it, you know? 
And so I've been trying to read everything I can read and learn as much as I can about that moment in time. But I feel like I cannot see the, the world that Charles McMickin lived in really quite clearly enough. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like, a, it's really dissonant. It seems very dissonant. That it is like that right. is normal for them, and uh, and right. kind of a weird, yeah. Yeah, there must have been a logical framework overlaying Charles McMickens' life. He must have made decisions based on the norms and the information that he had that he was working within. To us, looking at them today, we only see them as like that guy did horrible things and kept slaves, and he raped his slaves by having sex with them. And having, he has children with his slaves, you know, like all bad, which for sure is bad. Like, absolutely, I'm unequivocally clear that that is bad. But, like, is, like, is there more to the story? Is there something that I can't see? I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, and to your point about, like, you have very much correspondence between himself and anyone else. Like, it's very it's very difficult to develop like a primary source, a construct that like tells you, oh, like these were his views. Um, right. Because most of his, I, I assume most of his discussions were like in person, orally. Well, and there, you know, there are several written. There's not a lot written about Charles Nickin, but the few things that there are say he kept his own counsel, and he didn't ask for help or advice. That he ran his own business himself. So there are not a lot of business records. There is this one time where he was sued early on in his time in New Orleans or in St. Francisville, Louisiana. He had a business partner. And when the business dissolved, the partner passed away and the partner's estate sued Charles McMicken for more of the assets. And in that trial, some there we there is the um, there's a transcript of that testimony and someone says to the person who's testifying um would it be accurate to say isn't don't people refer to charles mcmickin as um tricky charlie and the and the it's recorded in the recording of the trial that the guy kind of nods he doesn't say yes but he sort of like accepts that so there is this sense that he's a bit of a um hustler i guess so yeah it's but we yes but to your point we don't have a lot of information about it and honestly what we have is not great like there's an, a letter that's held by one letter that's held by the archives and rare books library at university of cincinnati where he's writing to a friend whose name i believe is margaret bailey and he says um, that the friend, oh, no, I might be conflating two letters. I'm not sure who he's writing to. At any rate, he's writing, the friend says, hey, I have a friend who's going to travel through Cincinnati and wants to bring her slaves with her. Um, do you think she'll have any trouble keeping her slaves with her in Cincinnati? And this is Charles Mookin has written back and said, as long as they're under 12, I don't think it'll be any problem to keep enslaved people with you as you travel through Cincinnati. So that's awful. It's like sickening, right? It like makes my stomach turn just to even think about that. Yeah. And like, um, like if you read about him like as well, um, it mentioned, there's mentioning that after he died, you know, like, one of his slaves like disappeared, which I assume means they ran away uh, and were able to get off of his property. And like, because Cincinnati at the time was a free port, basically. Um, but I, although, you, although that's in the Reginald McGrain history of UC is where you got that, and yeah, there are got, no footnotes, so <laughs> I don't trust that. As a true, true. Um, but I, I would be interested in, in asking you about like where we place McMicken in the development of the institution, not just in as a, as a, as a university donor, but also as like, um, as the landholder, you know, um, he, he, it wasn't just the, his own land, like 
there was land in New Orleans and Missouri that should have been ours, but uh, we lost in lawsuits. Uh, so the University of Cincinnati could have had a much wider, larger campus. Uh, in, yeah. So um, Charles Nickin did not have a lot of cash when he died. He was not very liquid. He had most of his holdings were in land. So he owned land in, I think, six states when he died. Most of it was in, well, Cincinnati area and Louisiana. So um, what happened is one of his niece's husbands sued him, well, sued to, sued to say that he could not give land in another state, Louisiana, to a municipality in Ohio. So the city of Cincinnati could not accept a gift of land held in Louisiana. And it took years and years for that case to get worked out. And it went all the way um, up to, I can't remember if it was the Louisiana Supreme Court or the actual U.S. Supreme Court. I'd have to double check that. But um, at any rate, they decide, yeah, it must have been the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. They decide that, um, that in fact, correctly, that land needs to get dispersed to the heirs. So it is later sold and the proceeds um, go to the heirs. So in his will, Charles McNichol does list a whole bunch of people, and he gives both um, one-time gifts and he gives annuities. So annuities are where you receive a payment every year annually, um, and then some people got a one-time gift. So any of his living relatives were given either gifts or annuities. He doesn't give a lot of annuities, like 10 maybe. But he gives a lot of little one-time $500, $1,000 gifts. And then any of his nieces and nephews, even if they weren't even born yet, um, who were children, received that one-time payment when they turned 18. So there is a bunch of correspondence in the Archives and Your Books Library of people writing in to say, my child just turned 18 last week. Will you send a check um, to, the, to the Board of Trustees? Yeah. Um, so at any rate. We owned up, we had all this land. That's how Charles Newton left his legacy. And um, as you know, he died in 1858. UC didn't start until really 1870. And that's actually because the trustees had to figure out, well, they had to deal with that, that lawsuit I talked about, but then they also had to figure out like how the idea was that the rent from the property would pay to start the university. Right. So they had a lot of, like they had to upkeep things and paint things and get tenants and, keep kind of happy and do all this work. So it was a long time before we were even able to start UC. And yeah, you're right that by the time we did, it was much reduced compared to what Charles McMicken had imagined. He had imagined that he would be giving so much wealth to the city that the city would be able to open these, a college for boys and a college for girls and an orphanage for, um, which is what Stephen Gerard did in Philly um, for kids who didn't have parents and that they could be raised in this orphanage and then be able to go to the college as well. So his vision was far, far grander than what UC was ever able to actually do because much of the wealth that he thought he was able to give UC, what we did not actually get. Yeah, really was there another piece to your question? I think uh, I didn't know. So I'm going to sort of like travel off of that, um, going on to like the sort of development of the university as a property. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but we uh, moved, we didn't have like our property on where we are now until like the 1890s. Uh, and mm -hmm. we actually moved into Burnett Woods. Uh, but there was a lot of heirs, from what I understand, who were trying to stop that movement because it would go against what they interpreted as the, as the meaning of the McMickens will, which is that if the university needed to stay on the homestead property that he had right. uh, bequeathed the city. If I, I wanted to ask you about that, because that's really where the first discussions about like race at the university began, because there's a lawsuit where one of the things that they say is like, um, by allowing black students, you've gone against his will. Um, but like, they are able to like, accurately interpret that out of the will through this lawsuit. And I, wanted, I was going to ask you a little bit about that, if you could. Well, so you're right. We started originally the UC, 
Well, in fact, originally the money, the first McMicken money went to start the McMicken College of Design, which was actually at the corner of 3rd and Main. That building is still there, and I just drove by it the other day. It's actually being renovated. So there was a design school first, um, and then when the full college opened, it's on the McMicken Homestead, which is what he specified in his will, which is basically if you took Elm Street north all the way till it crashed into the hillside and looked up. That would be where the McMicken Homestead was. Um, and yeah, the university was there. They built one building, um, a kind of um, I don't know, Second Empire looking boxy, I don't know, four story building in brick. And um, it turns out to be a terrible place to put a college. The university, uh, the, the basin neighborhoods, the top of Over the Rhine is where this was located, were really polluted. Um, and there was all kinds of soot and smoke and also it was right next to an incline which was also noisy and made pollution and so um, pretty quickly the university community realized that they this wasn't a great place for a campus there was it was also it's on a hillside so there was no place for sports teams so as the student body wanted to start developing and feeling like a sense of school spirit and have athletics, they also lobbied to get out of that original site because they wanted to have sports teams and fields. So Burnett Woods was a city park that had been donated to the city and it began at Calhoun Street. So Calhoun Street was there and then on one side of the street on Calhoun was buildings and on the south side of the street there was, there might have actually been a row of buildings but then right behind that is park all the way to Ludlow slash Jefferson, right? So pretty much double the size of what Burnett Woods is today, but it was owned by the city. And so the idea was, well, the city has this university in a place that's not working, but we have this other beautiful place, we could plop it in there. So people objected and like didn't want to move and didn't want the university to take over the park they felt like basically it was creating an use it's an elitist use for the park right that the park is supposed to be open to all people but putting this thing in there that is only open to a specific type of person which at the time were almost exclusively white to your point and um and had a high degree of education that felt like it was closing the park off to most of the residents of the city of cincinnati which in fact it was and in fact um you know, part of the attraction of the land is like where um, where the stadium is today, where it is today, is actually a natural bowl shape in the land. And so they wanted that because they wanted, they were like, this is a great place to play sports. Um, but pretty soon they wanted to start charging for sporting events and they built a fence around it. So they, they're at first, they said, don't worry, don't worry, everyone in Cincinnati will be welcome on the campus. It's still going to be park-like, and it's still going to be open to everyone. But then, you know, when they wanted people to not be able to see football without paying, they put up a fence. And so they started immediately to make it feel less open to everyone and more elite. That doesn't really answer your question about race and that lawsuit. And um, I should say that your assessment of that is accurate, that um, one of the cases that was made to move the campus was like, look, you're already not paying attention to some of the pieces of his will. Let's just go ahead and do what's right for the university and move it up the hill. But to be fair, I don't know a ton about that. Sorry to jump in. I do have to go. <laughs> but it has been really nice talking to you. I'm sure you and Connor kind of continue to have a great conversation. Um, so I just want to say thank you <laughs> before I just jump off, but yes, yes. Okay, bye. Awesome. Thanks so much. I'm sorry I was yeah. there for a minute because my kids just woke oh. up and came down the stairs. So you can, do you want to pop in and see what I'm doing? Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so they're um, recording a podcast about Charles McMicken. So oh, cool. can you maybe hang out and do yeah. something that's not loud? Okay, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I will leave you all to it. Um, but yes, thank you again. Great to meet you, Isaac. Yes, Good luck at um, UC. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Stop by the history department sometime when, you're, when you have a minute off from engineering, come take oh. some classes in history. For sure, for sure. <laughs> okay. I guess cool. that's fine. I have to take it. I have to go, but. <laughs> yeah. When you yeah. have to take a history class, look over. Yeah. 
Right. Yes. Dr. Yes. McGee also teaches some really great classes about race that you might be interested in. So okay. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. Thank Take you care. again. Yeah. Bye. Yep. Bye. Bye. And so I guess now my next question is really more about how do we go about like conveying this stuff to people? Um, or how has the institution gone about conveying this, this to people? And what might be like sort of a development that is more uh, engaging and and like people will really like be able to see and, and understand and uh, yeah. sort of so now you're in my total comfort zone, right? Like I'm a public historian and this is what I do is I think about how do we take information about the past and convey it to the public. So the article that I wrote for Ohio Valley History talked about the way that Charles McMickens, um, the reality of Charles McMickens' life has been sort of almost purposely forgotten over time that certainly when he died and by the time the university started, everyone knew that Charles McMickens had been a slaveholder that Charles McMickin, um, certainly the trustees of the university knew that he had um, black children, and they knew that because there was a piece of land in the West End um, that he owned that the university should have been making rent on, but when he gave it to the university, when he gave it to the city of Cincinnati, but instead um, his black daughter lived there for free. And so um, the trustees made that happen. One of the trustees was a guy named Freeman Carey, who had been a friend of Charles McMicken, who was a raging abolitionist and totally against slavery. And so he, um, you know, made space to protect Charles McMicken's black descendants, even though they weren't acknowledged in the will. But it was like a little... Um, you know, a, a well-known secret, right, that people people would have known, right? Well, then over time, the memory of Charles McMicken changes, and the way the university starts to portray Charles McMicken is this great benefactor, that he's this amazing guy, all good, 100% good, 0% complicated, right? And that becomes the thing that we sort of passed down about Charles McMicken's legacy is that he made this amazing sacrifice and gave all his land to start our university. And that's true. He did that. But he also was right. so complicated and so complex and did all these other things, a lot of which were terrible. So um, in terms of your question about how we put that out into the public today, so step one is that we need if you ask me, this is all in my opinion. I do not, I'm not the queen of the universe. I do not have power to make this happen. But if you're asking me, here's what I would say. That step one would be for UC to really um, allocate resources towards research. We just don't know enough about Charles McMickin, and there is more we could know. There, there are, I can tell you for sure, because I've been there, are documents in county courthouses in Louisiana that we have not yet looked at. You know, I barely scratched the surface of his land holdings in New Orleans. We could go, you know, there should be money to pay researchers, and I would be happy to be that researcher because I'm already, I've already done some of it, and right. I know where the stuff right. is, but I'm not paying out of my own pocket to go to New Orleans to do this research, you know. UC needs to say, we really value this. We want to know everything we can know about Charles McMickin, and we will create a one-year funded research position or a research fund that funds a bit of research every year. Or I would love, in fact, to create a class where I get a small cohort of really talented history students and we do the research together. I would love to take a group of students, you know, six great undergraduate researchers and I could go to New Orleans. In fact, one of the houses that Charles McNickin owned in St. Francisville is now a bed and breakfast. So that would be weird, but we could even stay in Charles McNickin's house. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I would love to take students for a week and really document everything that's in the, um, it's called St. Francis, uh, West, it's um, uh, West Louisiana Parish. I would love to see what's in the West Louisiana Parish. All, I mean, I've been there. I've spent days in there archives already, but there's much more. And like, how awesome would it be to really have to do a systematic approach to um, documenting every single thing we could find out there about Charles McKinnon. So that's step one, is just to know everything we could know. 
And then once we have that sense, I think we have to think about how we put it out in, on the campus. And my general belief, here comes another siren. My general belief is that people are smart, the public is smart, and that if you give people all the information, they have the critical thinking skills to make meaning of it and make sense of it themselves. And so what I would love to see is a multimodal um, display of, well, everything we know about Charles McMicken. So by multimodal, I mean, it could be an exhibition that has 10 panels. Let's say we do, you know, a panel about his early life, one about his business, one about his um, slaveholding, one about his connection to the American Colonization Society, one about his life in Cincinnati, one about his um, donation to the University of Cincinnati, one about the lawsuits that happened after his life. You know, I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but like there are some really interesting things in his life that we could create literally like panels about, you know, they could be physical exhibit panels, but multimodal meaning they could also be on a website where you could get the same information on the internet. They could also be a pamphlet. So when people come to campus, there's something that they can walk away with and take home and look at. Um, it could happen in, it could be accessible, that good information could be accessible in lots of ways. And then people can, once they have good information, they can do with it they can figure out how do we move forward from this. But until we know, we're just imagining. We're just um, sort of, we have half the story or a third of the story or two thirds of the story. And without as much as we can possibly know, it's going to be hard to figure out what are our next steps. What do you think? <laughs> um, well, on the one hand, I. I, I feel like part of the worry there is that, like, the, you know, maybe there's this feeling that, oh, you know, sharing this information with the public might detract our institution or, like, might um, attract less students to us knowing that we have a historical relationship with slavery, with the irony here being that almost all of the American uh, like even if you go to Harvard, <laughs> like Harvard is probably like one of the worst ones where when it comes to not just slavery, but like Boston elite were uh, engaged in the slave trade, even though they were in the North. Uh, Harvard was engaged in other like, you know, racial like science and, and, and things like that that were like very much rooted in like white supremacy. And like, uh, that's like a common thing across like academia between the uh you know the founding of our, our country and and the, even into like the 1960s and even past that you know like every every institution has a weird and strange and, and, and curious relationship with race that hasn't necessarily been discussed except for probably the historically black colleges and universities even though there's a different relationship with race where they've been you know underfunded and things like that um and like for me, I, I would definitely be interested in seeing an exhibition. Um, and, and currently, for people who aren't listening or who are listening, uh, there is like a uh, an a electronic panel in front of the building. Uh, although it works sometimes, and it works it works it doesn't work other times. Um, I would I, say since it's been installed, it has been out of order more than fifty percent of the time. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a finicky thing. Uh, it's an interesting response. Um, people do like a, like electronic things, but it might have been more interesting to see sort of a set of panels that are always readable, um, as opposed to something that is reliant on technology of like yesteryear, basically. Um, I think the reason that UC went with that. Um, digital board, it was the idea, it was that as the information changes, it'll be easier to update it, and then mm. we can just change out the data that's in the digital thing. I think they, unfortunately, didn't um, take the technological challenges very, they didn't look at hard enough, like, it doesn't, it doesn't behave, it shuts down in the cold weather. Yeah. Um, so it, 
it, they, I think we, I, I think it was well-intentioned, but I think that maybe um, figuring out how to get something that is more hearty and would be good. But to the point of like it's changing things as information changes, you can change exhibits too, you know. Uh, <laughs> museums change the exhibits all the time. This is something that I don't think like, uh, you know, you spend, for the average museum goer, you, you probably go like once, maybe every year if that. And like, you don't really notice the changes. Um, but as you get more invested in like public history, there's very clear like when people are like, oh, that is not the same as it was last year or the year before. Um, I think I can think of a lot of things with like um, the Cincinnati Museum Center op reopening recently that have changed between my experience of it as a, as a young kid. And it, it's, a, it's like a structure now, especially on the Cincinnati side of things. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think an exhibition is probably the best way to go about it. Um, uh, I for me, class, um, in my Cincinnati history class, I guess about a year ago, the student's final project was to look at a monument on campus small group project, look at a monument on campus, assess how well it was working, and if it wasn't working well, to kind of propose a redesign. And that class, those students proposed a really amazing exhibition space in that um, common area where the benches are just behind McMicken, like a series of panels there. Yeah. But it was such a fantastic design. Um, in fact, I was so enamored of it that I sent it to the university architect to be like, hey, I hear you're going to redo this plaza. How about yeah. this? But I guess the, he said that the plans were already done for what yeah. was going to happen. So, um, But it was great. Also, I love that that tunnel space that you walk through in yeah. the middle of McMicken. And I feel like because it's protected from the weather, that would also be an excellent exhibition space. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think another thing here is like, um, obviously the building is like, McMicken Hall is named McMicken Hall. Uh, the uh, McMicken Commons is no longer named McMicken Commons. McMicken School of Arts and Sciences is no longer named McMicken School of Arts and Sciences. Um, they've, they've ripped the McMicken name off of both of them. Uh, so the, the question becomes like, um, what is the sort of investment in, in retaining the name of McMicken on McMicken Hall? You know, we've got, we've got Cunningham Hall on McMicken. In, in McMicken which is named after a former trustee who donated a lot of money. Same with uh, Hannah Hall. Hannah. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like there are p better people at the founding of our institution, whether that's like Freeman Carey or uh, Dr. Comegas, who's one of the people who was, uh, who testified at the trial of, uh, regarding like race and the will and the university's interpretation of the will and basically said, yeah, we've had wonderful black graduates here, like, and in the 1890s, you know, and um, yeah, yeah, there are more people that we could sort of attach our institution to publicly, especially seeing as that is like a, a building that is seen quite often and referenced quite often as like a sort of hallmark of our institution and used in a lot of marketing, which is kind of a sort of double irony. Um, but yeah, I feel like. In far, insofar as like exhibiting, perhaps we exhibit as opposed to sort of hold up as a uh, as a thing yeah. of like repute. I agree. I think that that right now McMicken Hall is kind of the like logo or the the like thing that you see the shining thing that you see in all the mm -hmm. materials, and it's. It's centering and celebrating a slaveholder, right. and so if UC doesn't want to do that, they should think about doing something else. But I'm—I definitely do not want to erase no. the, the the legacy of Charles McMicken. You know, he UC wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Charles McMicken. Like, I think we have to acknowledge that he did something that was incredibly—I don't know—well, um, forward-thinking for sure. Uh, you know, he could have given all that money to his kids and his, or his, he didn't have any kids. He didn't have any white children. Of course, he had black children, which he should have given all the money to, but he didn't. Um, he could have given all the money to his descendants, and he 
chose instead to do something that was like in the civic good or you know he thought would make Cincinnati a better city he thought would make the nation a better nation you know so like much as he participated in the worst most embarrassing horrible system which ever existed in the United States he also we can't just erase him from the universe and pretend he never existed because we wouldn't be here without him, you know? So and it's not how a do we acknowledge debate. that? What? It's, it's not it's a, a statute, statute debate. debate. Yeah, exactly. It's not like it's a yeah. random like thing that is in our city that like we, right. we put up, uh, right. you know, celebrating some random general who has no relevance to us because uh, the right. Confederate daughters of America were like, hey, let's, let's put this right. thing here. Uh, right. And I feel, I feel basically the same way about those statues. Like, the best, my best, I, first of all, I don't want them in a place where they upset people. Like, like if you have to drive past right. the bad guy every day, hey, like, no, you, no one should have to do that. But if we, but if we move, but we also shouldn't melt them down. You know, yeah. if you move the statue to a place where you would choose to go to see it, then in that place, you should complicate the story and explain mm. who this guy mm. is and explain why this statue ever got there and what it meant in its moment in time, yeah. time right? Yeah. Um, and I feel the same way about our legacy of slaveholding as you, that you see, right? Like, we can't get rid of it. We have to tell that story, but it should not be in a place where it's literally hurting our students every time they go there. You know what I mean? Like, that's... I loved what um, President Neville Pinto said when he took the recommendations of the McMickin Commission for taking the name off the College of Arts and Sciences. He echoed what students had said, students of color had said to him, you know, every, I can't, I don't want to put my diploma and hang it above my office, my desk at work, like a lot of people do, you know, because it has a slaveholder's name on it. And I don't want to look at that every day. It's is hurts my soul you know and so i feel the same way like we don't want it these are our students our job as an institution is to uplift and prepare and celebrate our students and like the last thing we would want to do is create a situation that hurts them every day you know yeah You're you're muted, Connor. <laughs> That's my bad. Uh, there's a lot of things that that, uh, that we could do to, in response to this that uh, don't. I mean, like the they got rid of the the name on the diploma to to your point, um, but they still have uh, the name of the building. Really. So like as, as opposed to you know, so for four years, if you're a, in a history major uh, that's an African American student on campus or a um, you know, a communications or journalism student or English student, you still have to walk into the building. But I guess after afterwards, you don't have to see the name um, on your diploma. But yeah, there's a sort of like weird cognitive dissonance about like displaying and discussing race in America. And I think it has a lot to do with like the fact that we really haven't come to a like, We've resolved issues in a sort of discursive way that isn't um, totally productive because it doesn't resolve them finally. It's, it's it acts as it's more as it's more as though it's more of an ongoing conversation uh, as opposed to something that can be finally like addressed. And there's like a, I think of like the worst sort of like monument I've witnessed to like an issue. Um, is that uh, I, I live in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I, I spent the summer like, like quite a bit going to their East Campus, which is in a different part of Lincoln, the city. Um, but it's where like all of their agricultural and um, etymological and agronomics like faculty are situated and, and they've got a statuary and things like that. And there's this boulder um, that has a placard on it that says, or a plaque on it that says, um, basically, uh, the UNL excavated some uh, Native American bodies for their anthropology department in the 1960s. And 
they cremated them again, going against like Native American burial rites. And it's just a plaque on this boulder. Um, and that's something that I don't think is like a, a good response to like, um, to racial reckonings and, and racial issues that have been facilitated by your institution. Something that is, uh, but like, it's also the question of like, how, like, is there any one good way to do it? And, I, and as a, as someone who is starting to get more invested in public history, I would say like, obviously not, you know, every, there's, a, there's a multitude of ways. Um, the thing I would say, and this kind of goes back to your point about Harvard, is um, that the, to me, the most important thing is transparency. For you to say, like, just the information needs to be made clear that we're going to tell the truth. We're going to tell you everything we know, and we're not obfuscating, we're not holding anything back, we're not hiding something. That is what creates distrust. When like you were saying earlier that there was this sort of sense that UC might be afraid of losing um, donors, right? Or losing alumni support if they, if they were clear about Charles McMicken, right? And I would say that in my opinion, the institutions that have done the best job of dealing with their legacy of slavery are the ones who have been transparent and clear and right up front and share all the information. And that is what allows people to make good decisions. And honestly, I think that that attracts more donors and respect than you would lose, you know? Sure, maybe you see would lose a couple folks who really, really are invested in the memory of Charles McMicken. But I think they would gain a lot more particularly um, in the realm of respect and trust among our African-American students and our African-American alums and our future African-American students that I think part of, you know, we have a low number of black students on campus. And, you know, I can't help but imagine that the, the sort of feeling that maybe we're not telling the whole story about Charles McMicken or other connections to race detracts from our ability to recruit black students. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I think, I think that just the transparency and the honesty is, I don't, you know, as a public historian, you could do it a hundred ways, Yeah. but that piece of it is the, the important piece. Yeah. And also, you know, just to say like, we made a mistake. Oops. Like, like, I don't mean like Charles McMicken's <laughs> mm-hmm. a mistake, but like, I mean, like, if I'm a historian, if I'm a historian and I misread something, you know, I miss a word or I misinterpret something and it comes to my attention, I have to say, oops, oh my gosh, I goofed. Here is what I thought then. Here's why I thought that then. And here's how I've learned more and and I need to correct my mistake, right? Like, people are human. People make mistakes. But you need to tell the truth about that right? People can be forgiving. You know, it's funny, like in politics, when people are like, oh, this politician waffled. I hate that expression because I'm like, no, I really respect a politician who thinks something and then allows themselves to be open to being educated and learning more and then changes their position based on better information. Like that's a good politician that rather like you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And I feel the same way about, uh, uh, you know, scholars, institutions. That's what we should be doing. We should be open to learning as much as we can learn as knowledge changes and new knowledge is revealed. We should be open to all of that. And then we should be honest about where we were then and where we are now, you know? I agree. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great place to, like, um, end this. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Cool, Steiner. Cool, of course. Um, and hey, I, so I do want to recommend your next, another podcast. Yeah. Can I give you another recommendation? Yeah, go for it. So um, when you were talking about the Lincoln, Nebraska monument to the Native Americans and saying it was like the worst monument you've ever seen, I actually think that we have an equally poor monument on our campus. Um, and there is a 
group of students who are interested in, have done a ton of research about it and are interested in trying to encourage UC to um, create a more fitting monument. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want to introduce you to, there's a group of three undergrads and a recent alum, just a one year out graduate, who are, have a little project going that's called Boldly Better, that's um, trying to push for a new monument for um, victims of a cancer radiation study that UC conducted from 1960 to 1972. Yeah. So um, I would love to, I want to connect you with those students and they would be great for one of your podcasts. All right. Dope. Cool. Awesome. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. I hope it turns out great.